0: Welcome to the Augustine Podcast, a conversation about the life, thought, and work of St. Augustine of Hippo. I'm your host, Joshua Blanchard. guest today is Dr. Sarah Stewart Croker. She is the Associate Professor of Early Christian Theology at Princeton Theological Seminary. She received degrees from McMaster University, Yale University, and Princeton Theological Seminary. Her work has been largely focused on Augustine and Augustinianism, both historical and contemporary, virtue ethics and aesthetics. She has been published in the Journal of Religion, Augustinian Studies, the Journal of Religious Ethics, and others. Her previous experience includes serving as a Jacques de Saint-Arclin's Associate Professor of Theological Ethics at the University of Geneva, where she taught classes on emotions and affectivity, forced migration, and ecumenical methodologies, as well as feminist ethics and theology. Her most recent book that we're discussing today is Pilgrimage as Moral and Aesthetic Formation in Augustine's Thought. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Well, let's just jump right in. Tell me a little bit about yourself and how you came to this work. Yeah, how you got from Hamilton to Princeton. Basically, what what do you do for a living?
1: Yeah, so um, I I did my yeah I did my undergraduate work in um, at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. Um, I went from there to the Master of Arts in Religion um, degree at Yale Divinity School, and then I did my PhD at Princeton Theological Seminary um, between 2009 and 2014. And then I did a two year postdoc at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver with Mark Vesey. And from there, I went to Geneva, the University, the Faculty of Theology in Geneva, Switzerland, um, where I was working um, for the last seven years until I took the job. coming back to Princeton, um, but uh, part of that transition or part of those transitions was also um, that, you know, I, I did my PhD on Augustine um, when I was here, I was working in the postdoc on Augustine. Um, the job that I took in Geneva was an ethics position. Um, okay. And so that, And and now, of course, my position back at PTS is in early Christian theology. So I've sort of um, had I've had two different sort of titles, Mm. Um, but in both cases, they uh, reflect something that's really important to me in the work that I'm doing, which is that I'm interested in working on historical texts and material, but with um, an orientation to contemporary concerns and I don't always, uh, in all of my work in ethics, I don't always use historical material, but that's very much uh, the dominant characteristic of the work that I do, is drawing on um, historical material, and especially Augustine, um, to think about um, matters that I think are of ongoing relevance for us today.
0: Okay, good. That's exactly where I'm at. So this is a very similar thing. I came to Aberdeen to do theological ethics, but the guy I was studying was left. And so I ended up with John Baer and Lewis Ayers. I sat down. John was reading a draft last week and he's like, I don't know what this is. Um, it's not quite patristics. It's not quite theological ethics. And I was like, Yeah, I need help. But I I think there are people who are okay with this. So that's, yeah. That's good to no, hear.
1: that's right. That's that's part of yeah, part of figuring out how to locate myself. Um, was, did involve sort of discerning what my identity, my scholarly identity was, because I am not a patristic historian. Um, And, and so how to, and I am very much interested in how Augustine is still um, generative for thinking today, and especially around um, moral and normative concerns. And so, but that's not always, obvious from a from a contemporary christian ethics standpoint either although maybe augustine more so than some other figures since he remains so um so influential but yeah yeah, sort of bridging bridging serious sort of historical theological work with um contemporary uh, contemporary normative concerns is something that i've always been interested in doing and there are people um, i'm certainly not alone and i think there's an ongoing de-siloing of some of those Mm -hmm. subfields, but also guilds that is happening right now, which I think is very exciting.
0: Oh, good. I was going to ask, is this something like, do you feel like you ever sort of found your home or is it just at a point where you're on the faculty at PTS and so you can stop worrying and people just say like, oh, okay, I guess that's what you do?
1: Yeah, I think at this point when I knew, when I took the job at uh, PTS, I Was I knew exactly how I wanted to the kind of work that I want to do and how I wanted to talk about it, and so I was clear about how I how I see my work and how I understand it um, fitting in with the department and the teaching needs there, and um, if they had wanted a a patristics historian (laughs) that I wouldn't be that person. Um, So. Thankfully, they did want um, somebody who was doing the kind of work that I'm doing.
0: Good. Are there other figures that you like to draw on a lot in addition to Augustine?
1: Yeah, well, I'll be teaching, you know, part of the shift in these positions will especially impact the kind of teaching that I'm doing. I've always incorporated historical material uh, beyond Augustine as well into my teaching in ethics um, in Geneva. But this will definitely sort of shift my center of gravity in terms of how much of that, uh, how much of that material will dominate my teaching. And a lot of the material is I'm, I'm excited about teaching more of this material because it's really fascinating and it's and it's really. Enjoyable and rewarding, I think, to try to draw students into material that can appear very foreign and strange um, if you're not used to reading the early Christian theologians. So I was teaching a course on emotions and affectivity in early Christian theology this fall. Yeah. Um, so which which was which was a lot of fun and working with texts from Basel and Cyprian, Gregory of Nyssa, um, but also some of the um, as Well, so we did the passion of um, perpetua and felicity. Yeah. There's just they're fascinating texts um, from from those early centuries, and they're often quite surprising. Um, and and the well, the and the emotions and affectivity lens also gives a particular kind of angle into that material, um, which which was, I think, helpful in in bridging some of the historical gaps. Um, because the experience of uh, sometimes difficult emotions like anger or envy, um, as well as the, or grief, as well as the more positive ones is something that I think provides, provides an entryway that might be more relatable in some ways than sometimes the text just on their own Yeah, appear. I was gonna
0: ask how that's received uh, from your students. I mean, I don't know what the course is titled, but are they going in sort of expecting a, a patristics course? Are they like, oh, emotions and affectivity, that sounds good. Uh, Was there good engagement?
1: It was great. It was really wonderful, actually. Um, The engagement was, I mean, I think most of the students had not had a lot of exposure to the early Christian texts. Um, And so it was an opportunity to to dive into more of um, that sort of theological period, um, but it also, and and so yeah, that that sort of question around how to connect um, this ancient material that is written in such a different time and mode, also than you know they might be used to reading, was um, I I think connecting to the material through these sorts of questions around emotion um, it 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 helped with the with getting into these sort of fundamental human questions that even in a very different time place and theological mode are still really you know shared shared experiences even if some of the ways in which they're thinking about emotion um is obviously quite different from ours and also how it connects to, to virtue.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Good. I'm, I'm glad, uh, I'd pay to sit in on that course. I get to do a little bit with John Bear on early Christianity. Um, and I have really enjoyed, like, he will pull in a lot of iconography and sort of, uh, he does a lot of sort of early theology and art, um, and that stuff has, has been good. And yeah, it connects with students a lot more than maybe just Letters Against Heresies does. Uh, for better <laughs> or worse, uh, they seem to like the pictures. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Good. Uh, well, that's helpful. Is l- The last thing I'll ask, uh, I might just be misremembering this. Is it pretty dominantly sort of early church figures that you study? Um, maybe it's just because you're at Princeton. I want to say I saw something about Karl Barth um, on your bio, but I don't know if I'm putting that on you as a, a PTS person.
1: No um I yes I've done a little bit um on Bart there's a cha- or part of a chapter on Bart um in the second book that I wrote which was in French um, I wrote that while I was in Geneva um, you like I Canadian. also yes <laughs> um and the uh, and then, you know, I was involved in organizing a big BART conference while I was in Geneva and okay, essay yeah. in that in that volume. So I've done a little bit on BART. I Actually, when I started my Ph.D. at PTS, I was going to I was planning to write on Augustine and BART um, and then ended up just focusing on Augustine. But yeah. Bart, That's too much Bart, reading. Is, BART is a It's. <laughs> I realized it was uh, the scope of the project. Um, was yes partly a question of scope but also that the question that i ended up wanting to focus on in Augustine was going to take up um more than enough (laughs) um a dissertation's worth of work so Uh, but yeah i'm still um very much interested in continuing to work on contemporary figures as well so some of my work in aesthetics for example um continues to be very engaged with contemporary figures but also um, some of the some of the work that i'm doing on um, gender and sexuality is very much engaged with contemporary material both theological and philosophical so yeah. i'm so that that remains very very much a piece of my
0: research interest fair enough good i want to get to the, the theological and philosophical but let me just ask what was the dissertation at pts and who did you work with
1: yeah so the my dissertation was um you know a version the dissertation of my version of my first book um on pilgrimage as moral and aesthetic formation okay and um for for that project i worked with john Bolin, um who supervised the dissertation yeah. i was still at pts um, as well as annalyn cherry and uh eric gregory and jim wetzel who's at villanova yeah. and now also directing the augustinian institute so
0: good a little bit that's with a, peter brown as well that's a great team <laughs> yeah yeah that's not bad good i've i've had the chance to sit down with uh with jim and just chat with him a couple of times at one of them for the podcast and it's always a pleasure yeah i i'm always wonderful. Challenged when I talk with him. I'll just say that I was like, I don't know what I'm doing anymore. But mostly because he's like, he says the same thing. He's like, I think I'm Christian. I'm pretty sure. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm like, okay, good good company. I'm on board. Good. No, Jim's
1: work uh, has yeah. been really important for mine. And um, the he writes in such a distinctive mode as well, which I've always um, found really inspiring. Actually, the way that he sort of combines the philosophical and theological reflections but with such a with such an elegant and poetic sensibility
0: yeah and he sort of holds nothing back like there are there are lots of sort of theologian philosophers who i think are writing basically theological arguments but put it in the most philosophical form they can uh and jim seems to do the opposite where He really gets to the heart of the problem by saying like, oh, yeah, Descartes should have loved Jesus more than he would have been a philosopher. You can't. just (laughs) Yeah, okay, Uh, Yeah, it's very poetic and it seems to be very uh, authentic, for lack of a better word, just what comes through. Where do you find yourself in that sort of theological philosophy line? I mean, you're on faculty at a seminary, but obviously you're doing very philosophically informed ethics for one and you're in a world i guess where that demarcation doesn't exist in your church so how do you sort of navigate those waters
1: yeah that's a great question i think for i've always identified as a theologian but working with the philosophical material um, has has been something that i've found really helpful and generative and you're right part of that is very much reflected in the early Christian sources. So that um, Augustine, while he has all of his polemics against the philosophers, is himself a deeply philosophically informed theologian and theological thinker. And so in that regard, um, you know, working on Augustine, you have to develop... fluency with sources um, like Plotinus and the Platonists, um, like the Stoics, um, like some of the Roman, the other Roman philosophers that are in the background of his thought. Well, so in the background and sometimes in the foreground when he's... um when he's addressing them directly, but they're often in the background um, in ways where he won't name them directly. And so you sort of have to do a bit of sleuthing to know, you know, who is the target mm-hmm. um, in the background <laughs> of this argument? We know that there are. Um, but so so in that regard, you know, working on the early Christian material requires working with um, Material that for want of a you know given our given the way that we classify these things we will classify them as philosophers, um, but that is something that I have carried forward as well, so uh, many of the sources in aesthetics that are contemporary thinkers that i'm that I'm in dialogue with um, many of the thinkers on the environmental side of some of the work that I've been doing, but also, um, in terms of feminist, uh, feminist ethics and questions around gender in all of those areas, I've found, uh, contemporary philosophical sources to be really generative as, um, as sources and as interlocutors for my own thinking.
0: Yeah, I, I know in one chapter in, uh, in this book on pilgrimage's moral formation it just starts yeah with three different philosophers none of whom are very concerned with eternity and uh sort of moral deserts. but engaging with those sources was i think clever I, I don't know what the philosophical side of things how how they feel about it but i feel like <laughs> it was a, a helpful way to sort of under, understand where augustine is in these different things again something i'm wrestling through myself so it's always good to just hear how people keep up with it. Uh, I don't know how you have the time to keep up with philosophical sources and modern sources and ancient sources, but that's <laughs> no, good on you. Good. Well, let me ask you about this book in particular, Pilgrimage as a Moral and Aesthetic Formation. Is that right?
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: Why, why do you want to do a dissertation on these themes? Why would you stick with it for so long?
1: Yeah. So it was, I think... In a seminar I was taking with Peter Brown at the time that I just started to track the different instances in which he deploys the pilgrimage image and um, also noticing how it shifts over time, um, over over the course of his thought and in his corpus. And so that, that just sort of piqued my interest. Um, In part because I was already interested in the relationship between um, Augustine and the Neoplatonists and especially Plotinus. And he often uses that image um, to contrast the Christian way um, with that of the philosophers and especially the Platonists. And I and so it was really just as simple as that, which was starting to notice how he deploys it, when he deploys it, how it shifts over time and and wanting to investigate it further. But also it was um, because the image itself struck me as one that was really theologically rich in which a number of pieces of his moral theology converge but not only um his moral theology i mean his ecclesiology as well uh, his christology his soteriology all of that uh is i mean it, it's an image that is a site of convergence and while there's been and, and so i i you know while it's an image that is certainly discussed in the literature i I had trouble finding um, an account of the image as a kind of central site for Augustine's theological reflection. And Mm -hmm. as anybody knows who sort of dipped their toes into the Augustinian waters, the corpus is vast and um, overwhelmingly so. And he's he's a very synthetic thinker, not very systematic in Mm. many regards. And so as a result, there's sort of a tendency or there there can be a tendency to really focus on, you know, a text or a topic um, in order to narrow down the scale of, um, you know, the material that could be brought to bear in any given study. And my observation or part of what has always drawn me to Augustine's thought is the way in which he is thinking very synthetically in which themes are going to overlap and interplay. And he'll, you know, he'll sort of spiral around a theme and um, layer a whole bunch of theological considerations into even when he has a, uh, a specified topic like the Trinity, for example. Um, And I wanted the work that I was doing on Augustine to do justice to the way that he thinks in those regards, sort of his his method, if we want to use that term. And I and as I started to look into all of the many instances in which he uses the pilgrimage image, I realized just how pervasive it was. So, you know, the beginning of the project, um, I knew I wanted to to work on this pilgrimage image, which struck me as this sort of central uh, metaphor in Augustine's thought for the Christian moral life. But as I then, you know, went into just searching all of the instances in which he uses this image across the entire corpus, uh, which took months. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I just I realized how pervasive it was and that you really have this image um, populating his theological imagination from the beginning through to the very end, but it also enabled me to see where it's really dominant. Um, so it's all, for example, the by far the the most um, the most deployments of this image come in his commentaries on the psalms. Um, but anyway, so that was sort of um, That that was the beginning of the project was just figuring out, you know, where does he use this? How does it change? What is at stake? And uh, as I the deeper that I got into that material, the more appreciation I had for just how. Just how diverse the deployments of it are for Augustine and thus how central it is as a kind of key to his theological imagination. Um, but also to his central reflections on what is the Christian life? What is Christian faith? How are the means by which we engage in the process of um, becoming pilgrims, becoming Christian pilgrims? Uh,
0: I I want to ask about what pilgrimage is. But first, just tell me sort of where does it come up? You say it's all over. Um, I'm pretty naive. So I know it in the City of God. And I know it, yeah, in the in the Psalms, especially the Psalms of a Sin. Um, but I I heard it in a few sermons. But like, give me the the lexicon of where is this? In yeah.
1: <laughs> um. Well, like you I said, could probably you really... publish
0: just that. Like, here's where it <laughs> yeah, is.
1: Right. No, I mean, I have I have documents um (laughs) that date back i'm sure you have a spreadsheet somewhere that are they are just it's massive um it's it's and then even just that really as you as you were indicating even just that is quite fascinating um but yeah so we have it in the you know in the on the happy life um right Mm. at you know one of the earliest works um we see it across several of the early works In fact, and then I, but I locate a kind of turning point in his use of the image in Confessions, um, which is, of course, at the end of book seven, after he's sort of been talking about um, his relationship to the Platonists. And we get that, that, uh, that image of him saying, you know, it is one thing to glimpse the distant summit, but not have a way to it then, um, and so on. But then, yeah, so we have it on well, you know you'll find it across many of the sermons um you'll find it of course in city of god um wh- where it is a dominant image tied up with the two cities framework um you'll find it in letters um in the in the homilies on john's gospel and then all over the psalm commentaries um so it's it's in his work on the Trinity. It's in on teaching Christian doctrine. I mean, it's it's really. I don't know that there's a a single major work um, that in which it doesn't appear at all. And then many many of the the smaller works. So it really yeah. is this uh, a, a really dominant image um, across the corpus. But it it does shift.
0: Okay, how does it shift? Give me the well. First, what's pilgrimage? What are you talking about?
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> uh no, um, that's great. like the Let's first start there. <laughs> yeah. You know, fifty pages of the book, but uh, what's pilgrimage and yeah, how does it shift?
1: Yes, so this is a it's an important question actually because um the just the translation of the term is disputed, right? So some of the commentators on Augustine's thought um will say that peregrinatio mm-hmm. um the the latin term should not be translated as pilgrimage precisely because we have too many associations um built into it you know that are tied to medieval pilgrimage practices and then you know all the way through to our own and so there's a worry about um sort of anachronistic associations that we might have with that term and um and 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 a concern about getting of the associations that we may no longer have with that term through in the use of in the translation of peregrinatio and that's absolutely right um for in for augustine and in his context it isn't um it it's it's first and sort of fundamental sense is being away from home it's a state of exile or alienation but um but Uh, One of the reasons that I insist (laughs) that um, we can translate it pilgrimage, not to the exclusion of the other terms. So throughout the book, I make a point of using a range of terms when I'm talking about um, the image like wayfaring, sojourning, journeying, um, being in exile or being away from home. Um, as well as pilgrimage, uh, in order to capture the range of the term and what it can signify. Um, But I argue that it is rightfully translated as pilgrimage, because um, even though Augustine almost never has in mind a geographical journey per se, in a literal sense, when he's using it as an image for the Christian life, it is very much oriented to this sense of also the homeland for which one longs mm-hmm. um, so we have both the sense in which um, our state or condition as peregrini in this life is one in which we are away from home so exiled in some sense um, and you know wayfaring <laughs> in the earthly life um, but the the right orientation and the the essential orientation for the christian life is one in which um, for augustine we do orient ourselves to the to the homeland to the patria for which we long which is um which is heavenly and which involves union with with god and neighbor and so in that sense I think actually the, the meaning of what Peregrinatio is, I think is significantly and importantly um, still signified by pilgrimage in the sense that he, he thinks that that's, that that's actually critical to becoming pilgrims is that we long for a homeland mm. to which we, to which we aim to travel. But again, not in a literal sense, um, but in a spiritual one. And so, if we're going to sort of adequately capture the spiritual landscape, um, I I think that that's that's a that's a critical sort of valence of the term, and and one in which Augustine's use of it, um, there's reason to um, there's been some scholarship done on this, and there's reason to think that Augustine's use of it in that precisely in that way is part of what shifts its it's sort of lexical range um, mm. in the centuries to come that it and that he does so dominantly use it to refer to this longing to travel to the homeland um, that it that it that that plays a role in its sort of theological significance going forward
0: yeah he almost sort of adds the the teleological aspect of it it's not just exile it's also yeah, intentional in returning home how That's does right. that how does that just, I'll get to the it? how does that sort of shift the starting point of ethics? Yeah, I, I know there's lots about beauty and aesthetics, but just at the most sort of meta-ethical level, what difference does it make to start ethics as pilgrims?
1: Well, I think that um, for one thing, this is very central to Augustine's vision of the moral life, but that it's oriented to an end. That there is um there is an end that orients all of our longings, loves, desires, and actions, and that the the sort of the con- the content of that end, of course, for Augustine is union with christ um and the 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 way to reach you know the Union with the divine and um the company of saints, but I think that that is you know that that is the essential piece of that image um, i think in 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 insofar as the starting point is always oriented to this heavenly end. and right. so there's a it it means that the the eschatological horizon is never out of view. But I think it also it also means that he really does conceive of the the Christian life as a process, as a dynamic movement, as um, as a journey <laughs> um, that may have its you know that may have its distractions um, from which one might sort of make various kinds of detours. Um, but that also, you know, can be very arduous for which we're going to depend on other people, um, fellow travelers and where, and and so there's a, there's a, I think there's a very dynamic quality to the way that he'll use this image and and uh, including in ways that that he'll play out the metaphor in some detail. He'll say, you know, we're we're walking along this road when you know when it gets dark, we are afraid. We're afraid of, um, you know, maybe wild animals in the night, Mm -hmm. but also bandits or robbers. And so we have to sing to sort of keep our spirits up. Or you know, sometimes we have to cross the sea, and um, you know, we we are we have we face this risk of death, um, where we have to brave the elements. Um, we sometimes we meet people along the way who um, who delight us with their company, um, and so make the the sort of toilsome nature of the journey more pleasant. Right. Um, you know, he'll, he'll really sort of build out the metaphor in in these ways as well, which I think captures the, the interest that he has in sort of being attentive to the process of, you know, the 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 movement, which can be really difficult and, you know, isn't straightforward. It's not simply linear either. Um, but can be, can be one with its, with its vagaries as well. And I think that that is, I think that that's a helpful way of sort of thinking about, um, about ethics and the ethical life or the moral life, um, in particular that it's, um, you know, that there's a, there's a, there's a, there's an ongoing process, um, both of sort of striving to conform oneself to the end that one desires, but also, um, that there's an ongoing struggle to discern what it means, what, you know, um, come to various kinds of crossroads, or maybe you, you head down the wrong path, and then you have to make your way back, um, you need other people to, to assist you, um, people have different kinds of um, you know, are at different stages, but they still have to travel together right. as they all seek the same end. I think it it just captures some of yeah. the um, the aspects that I think uh, that are uh, you know that the the sort of dynamic the dynamic and processual aspect of of, of the moral life. So it's not a set of it's not simply this sort of set of rules it's it's actually very um very difficult. <laughs> um, you know what does it mean uh to order one's loves and desires and longings uh how does how does that play out materially well it's it's difficult it's not obvious we struggle
0: <laughs> yeah yeah i mean there's there's clearly something distinct in being yeah moving towards something theologically um Eschologically, but also having that starting point of yeah being sort of cast out um, compared to like you could have an image of oh this sort of is our home, but it's not our real home. Um, I feel like there are pictures that maybe would give some stability to the year now to sort of say you you have a home. You can you know there are plenty of Christian ethics that start with Genesis as. Some sort of you meant to be here, and Augustine never, never really seems to put us in the garden, cultivating the earth, like, as, as where we're supposed to be. Yeah, so it's not a set of rules, that's for sure. What, what is it? What sort of this moral formation? I know that's a, a big question, but I, I'm just curious, sort of how do you, you view Augustine's in relationship with ethics? Um, maybe specifically with Stoic ethics. You talk about the will a lot, and sort of cultivating things more than choosing things. So maybe, yeah. How do you feel like his ethics sort of play out?
1: Yeah, well, I think that here, um, the the mediating work of Christ becomes really central um, that, you know, for Augustine, and this is one of the central pieces of the way he uses the image to contrast um, Christianity with uh, philosophy, and especially the Platonists, Um, is that, you know, you can't actually find your way or make your way to that homeland without Christ. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: so that's where his, you know, his Christology is really central to the image because of the ways in which he thinks that, you know, that's the only way we can actually, you know, um, reach the, the homeland that we may or may not glimpse from afar. That's actually one of the things that shifts over the course of the image is the, de- oh, really? the degree to which he thinks that anybody you know that non Christians can even perceive the the homeland. So if in confessions, for example, um he'll say, well, the Platonists, they can glimpse the homeland from afar, but they don't know the way to get there. Yeah. um so they're missing Christ um, as the way to get home. Um but by the time he's using it, for example, in City of God, he doesn't grant them sort of that clear vision of the homeland. He says, you know, they, their, their sight is cloudy. They're, they're, they're looking for the homeland and they're, you know, they get as close as any non-Christian can, <laughs> um, but they, but their vision is no longer clear, right? Their vision is right. now um, clouded and shadowy. So they no longer clearly see the homeland. It's not just that they lack the way, um, but that actually reflects the, a Christological piece of the image in the sense that um, by, you know, as his sort of Christology matures, it's going to say, well, no, you can't see the end. If you don't know the way, because Christ can only be the way because he's also the end. And so there's no longer an end that is sort of accessible to, to sight without, um, without the way there, which is Christ. So he he integrates the way and the end um, over the course of the sort of maturation of this, both this image and his and his theology. So that mediating piece is really essential, but it doesn't make it necessarily more simple. Um, (laughs) What does it mean to follow Christ and to imitate Christ? And so in that regard, you know, the work of the Holy Spirit also becomes really key because it's the Holy Spirit who can, in fact, sort of inflame us with the kind of love for christ that we need in order to pursue this sort of arduous path and that's where the the the, the role of love and desire uh is is crucial and that's where the aesthetic
0: piece comes in as well i I would assume that role of the holy spirit is also something that sort of develops further and further on yes Yeah. yeah but he does sort of a pneumatology off the ground in his ethics yeah, it, especially in, in the early ethics with yeah, with desire, there's sort of this almost almost passive, almost sort of pure aesthetic, where you're like just hoping you you find God desirable enough, not much pneumatology. So that's let's get to know that that build as well.
1: Yeah, the spirit is really key in that, you know well, I mean this is fundamental to his ethics more broadly too, which is that it's it's fundamentally wrapped up with love and desire.
0: Mm-hmm. That
1: we most who what are human creatures at their most fundamental? They're creatures who, you know, are attracted to what they find beautiful or appealing. Um and thus they desire or long for or love what they find beautiful and they are repulsed by what they um You know find ugly or unappealing and so attraction and aversion become just just sort of these fundamental pieces of his of his theological anthropology but also his moral psychology Mm -hmm. and that means that you know coming to find things that are truly good beautiful is essential to um becoming pilgrims and to the christian life but we need the spirit to sort of both open our eyes and inflame our hearts in order to um to 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 long for christ whom we might otherwise you know find aversive right he talks about this um where it's like the philosophers disdain um you know christ who as, as you know how, how how, could God deign to become human, and then not only that, but um, you know, suffer and die this ignominious death? Well, without the work of the spirit, we might be inclined to to be disdainful of Christ or to or to find find him an aversive um, figure. and and so hmm. the the pneumatology plays a really important role there in yeah. terms of um both both sort of pedagogical in sense of clearing the eye, but but also um affective why inflaming desire.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And that's helpful in in sort of maintaining a, a a place for Christ to be ugly in a human sense. Yeah, you might find that repulsive. That's that's very helpful. Yeah. So if, if moral formation is I mean, this is the question, if moral formation is a longing for what is good and beautiful and that cultivation is spiritual in a a very literal sense, like it's the work of the spirit. What is sort of what is what is our role in the formative process?
1: Yeah, well, so precisely he does. um, He does think that we have to both sort of pursue deeper understanding of, um, who God is and what, you know, what imitating Christ look, looks like, but we also have to cultivate these emotional dispositions, um, and, and to cultivate longing, to cultivate desire. I think, um, much of the work that he's trying to do, um, in his sort of when he brings in the eschatological piece of what what does heaven look like um it's because uh he wants to impress upon uh his hearers or readers that this is something so abundantly beautiful and blissful that we rightly long for it Um, and precisely because it's something that we we don't have access to um we might we we may have uh, experienced foretastes of that kind of heavenly abundance but we don't have access to it and so he does a lot of work sort of cultivating this eschatological imaginary because mm-hmm. he is i think aware of how how essential, at least within his framework, it is to sort of to have something beautiful to long for and to give people images of what they long for, um, what they're longing for, um, in sort of orienting themselves to this end. And that, so, so we we have two, you know, there are two tasks in that sense, um, both of pursuing deeper understanding, um, but also cultivating. Cultivating that that love and longing in ways that then also inflect the rest of one's um, inner and outward life, and he does have a pla- have an important place for then also caring for the neighbor and sort of doing works of um, love and care in the in the present and in the earthly um, communities that one is a part of. But I think that discernment remains, you know, there's just no easy, there's no easy way, I think, when you conceive of the moral life in these in these terms, as Augustine does, to sort of respond to the realities of the ways in which, you know, our sight is only partial and um. our love can always flag We're subject to um, distraction, but also distress and suffering in ways that can, you know, that can make it difficult um, to know both to know what it means or looks like to follow Christ, to continue to experience that sort of longing that drives one forward. But also. um, To. uh, to 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 sort of be clear clear sighted or to or to actually conform oneself to the end that one longs for. So I think there's no way around the sort of complexity and partiality and provisionality of that process of discernment and the challenge to strive to orient oneself rightly.
0: Hmm. Yeah. No, I I think that's fair. I'm not suggesting we cut everything out. Uh. No, no. <laughs> but I, you, you get the the other side. I think more clearly in the book of trying to get away from the the picture of morality as endurance or just sort of aesthetic holding on. Um, yes, right. Yeah.
1: No, that's right. Because that's one of the big, you know, that's one of the big pieces of the or or that's one of the big debates in sort of Augustinian political theology or Augustinian yeah. ethics as to what degree is this just a p- fairly bleak and pessimistic view of the earthly moral life as one of, you know, sort of resigned and passive endurance um, of the evils of this world yeah. while we hold on for heaven. <laughs> um, and part of what I wanted to do in the book was to give it the picture of this, this more dynamic and sort of positively oriented aspect of his view of the moral life. And when we're, you know, yeah, it's not just, um, I always like this line from Kaufman. It's not just damage control and dystopia. Yeah. <laughs> um, if we pay attention to, um, the, the aesthetics and how they're wrapped up in his ethics.
0: The, the heart of a lot of this is where does the, the overlap between the eschatological and the human things come about? Why Why do we love these things that are here with us now and not just use them in the most vulgar sense?
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, well, yeah, I think that, that that aspect of Augustine's thought obviously is one that has um, generated a lot of spilt ink. <laughs> yeah. Um, and in part, that's because of another translation difficulty, which is you know that when he uses the term uses or UT, it's not it doesn't have the same um, set of associations that we have um, with, you know, using things for in service of, a, of another end, which sounds very instrumentalizing um, and problematic, especially insofar as well, perhaps especially insofar as it might concern our human neighbors, but not only um, if we want to have, maintain a real value for earthly goods and beauties, um, not, and not just in in relation to human companions who may, we hope, <laughs> also be with us in the, in the end. And I think that that, I think that Augustine has, um, I, I think it's very clear, and it comes out in the use of the pilgrimage image, that he has a real place for the importance of those those forms of comfort and solace and delight that we may find, um, in the midst of other difficulties or trials as well, but that we, that we may find in earthly, earthly joys and delights. And that in, in fact, you know, simply enduring without any sort of experience of delight or joy, I think would be really, um, Augustine recognizes that, that, that's difficult to sustain if your yeah. if your view of the earthly moral life is just enduring uh, suffering, which he also talks about quite a bit. <laughs> nevertheless, um, that you know is that enough to actually sustain the effort that he thinks it takes to sort of orient yourself to an end that you cannot see, that's abstract um, in many regards. And so those are, I think, two. He's both wanting to acknowledge how difficult earthly life is and that we should rightly um you know we rightly grieve um suffering and injustice and in this life you know it's in that mm-hmm. sense there's a very strong anti stoic um thread to to that's important to him in terms of acknowledging how difficult the earthly life is and yet we also need um we also need earthly earthly um earthly solace and earthly joy, we just, for Augustine, always need, I mean, need to, need to recognize that the source of any earthly good or joy or delight is God, and right. that the the true and full joy that awaits us it far outstrips, you know, not to get stuck along the way, you know, this is one of the features of that image as well, not to get stuck along the way, um, distracted or consumed by uh by earthly beauty um but rather to to recognize um to recognize its its source and so to continue on our 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 way to the (laughs) to the source
0: there's a way in which either way you cut it you sort of start to cease talking about a human if that makes sense like so much of it comes back to augustine's anthropology and augustine's sort of account of creatures, but to yeah, to be so stoic to not really be human to experience things and to be caught up in in sort of the the autonomy of what's going on around us is also far less than I think he wants humans to be because it's it's just devoid of real meaning. That's Mm -hmm. that's helpful. The the last thing I really want to get at is what's the church doing here. Because it's a, Mm. a unique account of church in moral formation. It's very different than the sort of virtue fostering of the the Thomistic tradition
1: yeah no um that's right <laughs> yeah so for Augustine I th- I mean I think fundamentally um it all flows from the mediating role of Christ for on Augustine's terms so that you know Christ if if what is essential to making this journey um, to the homeland is to embrace Christ, who is both home and the way to get there.
0: Yeah.
1: well, how do we how do we have access? How are we shaped um, to travel that road? We need we need the church. Um, so we need the church both because of the scriptures and the sort of teaching but also um because because of the sacraments um so the baptism and the eucharist by which we are joined to christ's body but then it also plays out in terms of you know these images of the church as you know this the the troop of the troop of travelers along along the way together who need to support each other and who bring you know, different pieces of what is needed to actually execute that journey. One of the things that I think, so we can come back to some of those aspects um, if you'd like. One of the things I did want to say though, that's interesting, I think about Augustine's account of of the church is that he's, he's very uh, conscious that the, you know, the church is itself imperfect. Yeah. Um, all of its members are. But also that there are there will be people who are part of this sort of earthly ecclesial community who are who are not truly oriented to um, the the right heavenly end. And so he does think that there are sort of dangers and risks, we might say, within, um, you know, within the. The church community, there, it's not, uh, it's it's not a sort of, um, <laughs> oh, overweeningly optimistic ecclesiology in that sense. And I think that that's actually an important feature of his ecclesiology: is that he does he does he's not a really rosy eyed about. um, about the church only being a a, a site where we're positively formed. It can also be a site where we um, can be led astray. And I think that that resonates with, I mean, for example, Lauren Winner's recent book on the the dangers of Christian practice. um, Augustine has a version uh, of that as well. at least in so far as he acknowledges that there are possibilities for deformation um, yeah. even within the church, and yet it remains the place where Christ is preached and where we are joined to Christ through the sacraments, and where um, we are importantly sort of engaged in the in the process of living with other people, um, you know, ha- however however difficult that may at times be.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I'm thankful for that account. Yeah, if you're going to do patristics applied to contemporary issues, I I think that's a good resource to have, an account of, yeah, imperfect, imperfect ecclesiology, but necessary, right? Well, don't make the church, but like, go anyway. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I'm always thankful to hear how people are, are wrestling through. I know wayfaring is a much more popular term for, for Christian ethics these days, especially if, if you are in the Bartian way at Princeton. but it's, it's helpful to sort of recover a a more spiritual ethic for Augustine. Or every question I asked you, I feel like you answered like, oh, well, Christology is central here. I could ask a lot more, but I, I'll confess I haven't finished the book because my kids got sick this week. So I'll, oh.
1: I'll finish <laughs> chapter
0: six, which is where all the normative <laughs> work is. And then uh, maybe I'll email you if I have more questions. Sure. But thank you for spending time. I want to know what are you working on now? What sort of... Your current projects going on
1: yeah um well the project the next augustine project um is on the emotions okay (laughs) um so that is that's a project that i started actually during my postdoc and then have sort of pursued um in tandem with my work on environmental theology and ethics, which all, you know, importantly draws on Augustine as well. But, um, and which I sort of, I had a sense actually when I when I left the postdoc and went to Geneva that it was a project that could benefit from um, some time to percolate yeah. and mature. Um, but I'm ready to get back to it now. <laughs> Good. And so that, so I'm looking at the role of, um, the role of augustine's uh well the role of emotion and affective formation in his political ethics okay oh that's that's the
0: that sounds good
1: the thrust of it i mean basically the the motivation for it was that in in the city of god in one of those you know he has two sections where he talks about emotions they're very schematic they're they're quite theoretical um but where he says you know the so it has a link it has a tie actually to pilgrimage because he says you know the members of um the you know the city of god on pilgrimage in this life need to have their emotions um rightly ordered yeah and so we know quite a lot there's been a ton of work done on ordering um of the ordering love um and there's been a lot of scholarship on the sort of theoretical pieces of his framework for the emotions um notably the contrast to stoicism and so on um but my question was well what does it actually look like to have your emotions um sort of rightly ordered what does what does that mean i mean it's one thing to sort of say oh do you desire that teleological eschatological end Mm -hmm. Which orders your loves? What does it mean for all of the other emotions, which for Augustine can include anger, um, grief, but and and so on. And the the premise of the project is that, while you don't get the fleshing out of what that looks like in City of God. You have to turn to the commentaries on the Psalms um, wow. to, to get that emotional uh, that emotional texture because he conceives of the Psalms as being the key, the scriptural key to the affective life of the believer. So I'll be sort of, that. that's the, that's the premise of the project.
0: Good. I look forward to it. I've just by luck sort of ended up talking to on the cancer Con line on the will a couple of weeks ago, and then you, and then talking to Sarah Byers, hopefully Oh, at great. the end of the month. So I'm I end up sort of three back to back very ethical will and uh moral conversations. Um uh, but the the emotions certainly uh, seem to be lacking. And I I'd spend more time in the confessions than anywhere else. And he's got little comments just here and there of like, oh I was too sad there, and I wasn't sad enough here, and uh there's work to be done. So I look forward to that. Soon. Yeah. Can I ask what What do you feel like is a primary text of Augustine that demands more attention?
1: Yeah, I mean, maybe this is too easy. (laughs) And perhaps a little self-serving, but I think that the commentaries on the songs are some of the richest. um, Works uh, that are, I mean, not in general, the sermons are really fascinating um, and rich texts, but the commentaries on the songs i mean this is by far the biggest chunk of his corpus yeah and it's, his it's corpus really long massive but it's it, it's just massive i mean the it's the it's both the single biggest sort of chunk of his corpus it's also um the most extensive commentary uh, or set of commentaries on the psalms in early christianity period and yeah. they all thought they were really important and key to the affect of life so i think that their importance and centrality to augustine as a theologian not just as a as a preacher they're mostly sermons um mm-hmm but not just as a preacher, but as a theologian, I mean, he spent, he was writing or preaching on the Psalms for over his entire career as a, as a priest and bishop and, um, and even before then. Um, So these are, I think, really key texts to understanding who Augustine is and what shaped him um, as a, as a thinker and preacher. Um, So I, so I'm, and there's just some also they're delightful at times sometimes they're infuriating but yeah they're also just really delightful and wild aspects to them which you get in the sermons that are that are um, that make them quite fun <laughs>
0: yeah i bought i bought the new city press uh, on a whim uh, before i moved to aberdeen and i just like read one or two of them every day uh and it took me more than my whole first year here uh i'd like to go back and actually read them again but yeah, there are some where you're like, what are you doing?
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, let's go with it. <laughs> no, cool. some
1: of them are quite, quite strange.
0: Some <laughs> uh, are very good. Have you read, this is sort of off-topic for Augustine, have you read Brian Brock's book, Singing the Ethos of God?
1: Yes, yes, yeah. so there's a connection there, yeah, for sure, in yeah. terms of the psalms the and the... Um, but also singing. I mean, this is this is another key piece, actually, that sometimes gets neglected is that for Augustine singing the songs is a, a, a central liturgical practice.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I told Brian, I was like, I don't know that I like your read of Augustine at all. Uh, <laughs> but I think we end up in the same place. So we'll go with it.
1: Right.
0: <laughs> yeah. Brian and I seem to get to the same place from opposite ends on most things. Uh, but mm. yeah, he's got a, a fun chapter there. Oops. That's worth looking at. Yeah, I look forward to that. I look forward to your work on emotions, hopefully more on the Psalms. Is there a secondary source that you could recommend relatively recent?
1: Yes. Yeah, so actually, um the sources that I will recommend are forthcoming. <laughs>
0: Those are the um, best ones.
1: Yeah. The, so the two secondary sources that I'm most excited about that are, that are coming up are um, two books. Um, one is by Tony Alimi um, titled Slaves of God. And the other is um, Matthew Aliyah. And that one is titled, oh, what is it? Um, I think it's The Figure of... Oh, shoot. I should have had this already. Oh, you're fine. Um, Anyway, they're both both coming out on... on, These two books are both coming out on um, dealing with the topic of slavery in Augustine's Thought. And um, what what is this called? The Problem of the Christian Master, Augustine, the Afterlife of Slavery. Um is the Aaliyah book? and so both of them are um, are are going to be dealing with this really important topic um that's been really understudied in 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 the scholarship on augustine. Um, they're both doing really they're both doing really incredible and important work with with this topic and augustine's thought from you know slightly different uh, orientations in 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 that um Tony um, really does this incredible work laying out the Roman philosophical backdrop. Um, And um, Matt is sort of taking a a more um, normative sort of critical theoretical approach. Um, But but I think both of them will be very important books for Augustine, for, for people who are interested in Augustine, but also in, um, invested in grappling with some of the the difficulties and 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 um, really deep sort of problematic aspects of his legacy, which of course we have no shortage of of <laughs> problems to grapple with um, in Augustine. But this is one that really hasn't gotten as much attention as it should. Uh, perhaps no you're aware of this, Sarah? No, I mean. Um, I don't know if you've read the Sarah Rudin translation of uh the confessions where she <laughs> translates Dominus um pervasively as master and how um how significantly that that shifts yeah. um, many of the metaphors that we have and the way that Augustine is relating to God. Um so I think this is um yeah, so anyway, those are two both of those books are gonna be coming out um in twenty twenty four. So Great. Keep keep a lookout for them. yeah I, they're I definitely will be really
0: important works. I'm always uh yeah, always on the lookout for new ones.
1: Oh, no, that's great.
0: Well I i hear children crying, so I should run. Okay, uh,
1: I will uh, let you go.
0: <laughs> no, sorry to, to rush off, but I appreciate your time. Not at all. And hopefully you um, can connect with It was again. such a
1: pleasure.
0: It yeah, was a pleasure. Thank be... you.
1: That would be great. (laughs) So all the best in your, in your, in these next few months of. Thank you. Dissertating and um, thank you.
0: I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Sarah Stewart Croker. If you're interested in hearing more about her work and thought, please go buy her book, Pilgrimage as Moral and Aesthetic Formation in Augustine's Thought. Also check out her recommended work, Slaves of God, Augustine and Other Romans on Religion and Politics by Tony Alimi. And also, The Problem of the Christian Master, Augustine in the Afterlife of Slavery by Matt Alia forthcoming with Yale University Press. Neither of these books are out yet, um, but they should both be out this year, so keep an eye out for those, and and I will try to make a point to make some comment in the podcast when I notice they are published. As always, our theme music is Oh Great Light by Jess Ray. I'm your host, Joshua Blanchard, and thanks for listening.